Psalm chapter 131. Psalm 131. There's not really chapters to Psalms. It's just they're numbered. So Psalm 130. I'm not really sure what the Lord was doing when he laid these passages on my heart a few months ago when I was planning out our services. I I did not know we would be in a new location. I did not know we would be worshiping at a different time. I, I did not know that that, that life would be going on. There would be a dome of heat over much of Central America, not Central, Central United States. Uh, if I had, I probably would have said something like I said multiple times this week. Are you sure? Like, God, are, are, are you sure you want me to, to do that? Um, I mean, Job last week, that's what I preached on last week, Job. And then this week, a psalm of lament, and then next week it's Ezekiel, and then the week after that it's a, it's a, it's Amos. I'm, I'm just not quite certain of what God was thinking or how God was moving. I, I will trust him. Because of the nature of the Christian year, I'm going to get to the reading in just a second. Because of the nature of the Christian year, I try to focus most of the time on the story of Jesus. Those are the prior, prior, primary stories that, that form and shape our lives. And, and so I usually leave the, the Old Testament lessons for the, for, the winter, for the summer. This is summer, right? Yes, it's, that's right. I usually leave those for the summer and, and time when people are traveling and, and getting into. And this year, these are the passage that the Lord was leading me to in hindsight being what it was, what it is. I don't know if I would have chosen them. I'm, I'm telling you as your pastor, I would have wantonly disobeyed the will of God. Anyway, with that wonderful introduction out of the way, I know you're all stirred and excited about reading Psalm 130. Hear now the word of the Lord. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in my, His word is my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, Hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With Him there is great power to redeem. It is He who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The psalm begins with those words, out of the depth. That is the location, that is the place where this cry of lament and pain issues forth. The depths were the watery abyss. In creation, it was the Spirit of God that hovered over this place of the deep. It was God's voice that spoke into the formless void, the chaotic mess that was the world, and said that word, light. And that word of light shattered into the darkness and divided it, separating day from night, light from darkness, bringing order. But even though the chaotic mess was subdued, 
It was not gone away with. It was imprisoned, shut up in the bounds of the sea and the night, but it did not disappear. It was always there, threatening, on the margins, ready to erupt over God's good boundaries, ready to reach out and lay claim, ready to destroy. The depths were darkness and disorder. It was the realm of chaos and sea monster. The depths were the place of despair and evil. It's interesting how even in our modern world, with all of our advances, we still speak of this descent into the depths of chaos. The markets, they, they crash down. Your cars, they break down. People, we fall into depression. We slip into comas. The depths are still the places of pain and depression, alienation and marginalization. And they leave humanity in that despair, drowning in the watery chaos. It is from that place that the singer cries out, Hear my voice. This is not a respectable, calm crying out. This is not a, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. <laughs> this is not, God is great, God is good. You know, these, these polite prayers that we do, this is a cry from the depths. This is not respectable. This is the soul crying, tear shedding, heart bleeding, desperate calling out to God in the night. Lord, hear me. Because if you don't, no one else will. If you don't come to my rescue, no one else will. All my resources are exhausted. All my strength is used up. All of my wits and my charm, my negotiations and my finaglings, they're all gone. Here, Lord. Hear my voice. When we get to verse 3, we finally get a name for this depth. This place that the singer finds herself. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to, I want to point out one thing to you. There's a, there's a key shift between verse 2 and, and verse 3. In verse 2, it is my voice. It is my pleas that go up to God. In verse 3, it is mark iniquities. That my is absent. Significantly so. I want you to hold that absence in your mind for just a moment because the psalmist here in the Hebrew poetry pushes us to a big idea that is Difficult to wrap our minds around. Human iniquity is that of an oppressive dynamic in all of our communities that makes prisoners of everyone. Human iniquity is this powerful enslaving force that requires an outside liberator. We have a shorter word than iniquity for that. We call it sin. We are sinners. Every one of us, all have sinned, Paul says in Romans. But that sin ricochets. It goes throughout human experience, bouncing off things. That sin has its fingers in all aspects of life. Everything that we create. All of the systems that we inhabit. 
Even according to Genesis, the ground that we tread and the air that we breathe, they have been corrupted by this influence of sin, by this iniquity. So what is sin? Death. Death. I want to hold off before we get to death, though. And and I want to kind of deal with that traditional Sunday school answer that some of you may have heard. You may have learned it. Sin as a willful transgression of a known law of God. This is the sin that we try to beat out of our children when they willfully disobey us. When we set limits on screen time and they somehow get more. When we tell them to eat their vegetables and they rake it onto the plate and give it to the dog. You set up rules and they flaunt them. That is a part of sin. We are human beings and we do things that God does not want us to do. We hurt and we steal. We lie and we cheat. We worship at the idols of power and prestige. We all do that. You don't have to confess and raise your hand and acknowledge it today. I know you do. I've seen your Facebook posts. All of them. I, I record them all. The psalmist is pushing us, though, not just to name those willful transgressions of the known law of God, but to acknowledge and to see that there is something deeper, something more pervasive. The root here in the Hebrew word for iniquities, it means to bend, to curve, to twist. I got my first bonsai tree this week. I say my first because there's going to be more, much to Yvonne's happiness. She's back there. She doesn't know this, so just keep it kind of quiet. My first bonsai tree came to me as a gift from my friend, and I love it more than I have ever loved any single living thing ever in my life. On Friday, I I took my little baby bonsai tree to my friend who gave it to me, and we, we gave it its first haircut. And this little, this little ratty mess of branches, we, we, we trimmed it away. And it was so scary. It was so terrifying because he was vicious with his shears. And I kept telling him, no, that he, need, he needs that. It's a he. In bonsai, I'm learning. I got a book. You want the tree to bend and to curve. You want it to have motion and a shape. You want it to, to have this kind of intricacies in it. That is not the bending that the word iniquities means. The the word here in the Hebrew is actually really closely related to the word for ruin, for rubble. That uh, condo uh, apartment home in, in Miami, Florida that just dropped this week to the ground, that picture is the ruin and rubble. Sin is a disfigurement. It is a malformation. It is grotesque even. Sin is that which dilutes and destroys and pollutes. Sin is the bending, the twisting, the turning of the self back into the self. Sin is the brokenness of the world. The wounds which mar the soul. Sin is is both and. It is both those singular things that we do and that corporate body to which we belong. Sin is both transgressions and iniquities. Sin is both cause and effects. Sin is that place in the depths that claw and imprison, that chain and bind. Sin is those deathly wounds which we all carry. Our pride, our insecurity, 
our doubts, our brokenness. And if God were to mark them, the psalmist asks, if God were to watch them, shahar, shamar is the word there. It means both to mark and it's going to show up a little bit later in verse 6 for to watch. If God were to be on the lookout for, to record, to mark them down, to see how destroyed and bent and broken we are, who could stand? I know the, the question is rhetorical, but it seems to me that I'm just going to answer for, for the psalmist. There, there seems to be two people, two groups that, that probably are outside of that rhetorical question. Well, Jesus, but that's I'm talking about us, though. There are two groups that are a little bit outside of that rhetorical question. Number one, those who don't need for God to see their iniquities because that's all they ever see of themselves. God doesn't need to mark the iniquities of some people because in their mind is a listing perpetual of their faults and their problems, their shame and their blame, their guilt, and they just heap it on themselves over and over again. There are those who never pass up the opportunity to replay and regret the past. I've been reading in my devotionals this week an interesting prayer. It goes, may I have a healthy sense of the shame of my past. Not a disorder, not an overly emphasized, not a beating myself over and over again, not a heaping up the blame, but a, a healthy sense of the effects of my sin. That's the first. The second group, I think, is kind of a little bit outside of this, at least they don't see, are those who have been so forgiven those who have been so sanctified that they are absolutely sure that the psalmist here is not speaking for them, not speaking in that the king's we, but speaking to other people. You know the type of people that, that they want you to preach about that subject that they really care about that doesn't impact them. They want you to, to, to care about those other people who are sinners and, and downtrodden and really need the gospel preached at them. The psalmist isn't concerned with these things, though. For no sooner has she spoken of the ubiquitous human iniquity that besets and destroys, that ruins and disfigures, than the psalmist sings out these words, but with you there is forgiveness. The pervasive character of God provides hope in the face of all despair which sin litters upon the landscape. The hand of God in forgiveness and redemption reaches over the apparent insurmountable, apparently impenetrable, insurmountable barrier that is erected by our sin. The Catholic liturgy Saturday before Easter, this holiest and, and most uh, uh, powerful service in the Christian year for them. They, they have this line in the liturgy. They say, they sing, O Felix culpa, O happy fault, O blessed sin. For in our iniquities, in our brokenness, in our inbent wills and twisted bodies, it opens a door for the true depth the true breath, the true length of God's holy forgiveness and love and mercy to be expressed. Jesus Christ came to forgive sins, 
to defeat sins, to heal sin. In light of the power of this forgiveness, the singer in Psalm 130, they break into doxology. Verse 7, For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With Him is great power to redeem. Steadfast love, it's a, it's a powerful Hebrew word called chesed. you got to kind of get it in the back of your throat. Everybody say it with me, chesed. We'll work on that. So you get a guttural in there. Chesed is this idea of steadfast love, covenantal faithfulness. And what it means is that God is faithful and loving towards us, even when we aren't faithful and loving towards ourselves. God is faithful and loving to us, even when we are not faithful and loving. To use the words from Paul Tillich, this is the unconditional acceptance by God of those who are unacceptable in their right. I misspoke that. The unconditional acceptance of God of those who are unacceptable in their own right. And what that word means is that God doesn't wait for you to get your life right before God loves you. God doesn't wait for you to clean yourself up and make yourself presentable. God doesn't wait for you to fix your problems and sweep up the rubble and unbend your spirit. God isn't cheering you on while you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't claw your way out of the depths by determination and willpower. You don't heal the brokenness of your life and your world. God is there unconditionally accepting you when you are unacceptable. This is not, you are not as bad as you think you are. You are. We all are. We are broken and disfigured. We are turned in on ourselves and beset by sin. And God loves you. Not because of your sin. Not in spite of your sin, but because of who God is. For with God there is steadfast covenant faithfulness. There is love that knows no bounds, that has no ends, that never stops. And with God, there is great power to redeem, to restore, to make new, to bring up that one who is bound and chained in the depths, to untwist that soul, to heal those wounds. The power of God is what comes upon us when we don't deserve it when we are not acceptable. And that is the power of God that heals us. That's, that's pretty good preaching right there. And I'm not supposed to say that. And you know, that's what they tell you in sermon class. You don't ever refer to your own sermon while you're preaching it. But it is. That is the power and promise of God. That is the, the heart of the gospel message. We are broken and God loves us anyway and God redeems us anyway. No matter what we've done, no matter where we've gone, no matter who we are, no matter what kind of baggages and history and shame and guilt we carry, no matter how disfigured and disformed we see ourselves are, no matter what the church tells us, no matter what the culture tells us, God loves us and redeems us. Now, the really astute here this morning will have noticed that I, I, I deftly skipped over a couple things in the middle of this psalm. There's this little bit in verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who wait and watch for mornings. 
You see that final praise. Celebrating and declaring, doxologically singing that God is great and steadfast love and overwhelming redeeming power. That's not a a moment of thanksgiving. There's no pause in this psalm between verses 1 and verses 7 and 8. I think the, the writer, the singer here is still in that place of the depths. I think the singer here is still crying out from that lowly place. But now, she waits. Wait is the Hebrew word, and it it, it means to almost have this sense of expectation, but with tension in it. Imagine two people pulling a rope, and and they're not giving up, and that rope is taunt and twisted, and it starts to fray, and you can just watch and wait for it to begin to split and snap. You see, we know of God's forgiveness. And we know of, of God's steadfast love that is with us from all generations. And we hope in the future for that moment. We watch for the Lord's powerful redemption. And between those two, between what we know of God and what we hope to see and what we watch for, there is this tension of hope. There is this elongated moment of waiting. Here is the glorious, horrible, holy place of hope. That tension that almost to the point of snapping. We wait. I think a lot of times, I'll I'll speak for myself. A lot of times in, in my life, I look at those times when I am in the depth. And I see that as an obstacle to faith. Like like as if once you get out of those low places, once you get out of the sin and the brokenness, out of the, the doubts and despair, then you can believe. Alan Hirschman is a is a psycho is an economist, excuse me, not a psychologist, who who actually takes the opposite stance. He actually looks at a lot of these things that we see as I see as obstacles, and he says, no, no, you get them wrong. They're They're actually opportunities. He writes about doubt in this way. He says that doubt is a creative force because it allows for alternative ways to see the world. And in those alternative ways, it could steer people out of intractable circles and feelings of despondency. For Hirschman, doubt is is actually a motivating principle, not a stifling one. And I wonder if that isn't something like what the psalmist is trying to say today. The depths, the the brokenness, the marks of iniquities could perhaps free us to believe. That the place of abyss can open us up to trust that the word of God's unconditional acceptance and unlimited forgiveness coupled with the hope of the Lord's powerful redemption might allow us to live in the tension and to wait. Your your Bibles have probably a title for this psalm. It's, It's not original, it's not in the Hebrew, but it's often there and it's often helpful. That My Bible calls it a song of ascent. 
It's one of several psalms that that bear that marking. And and the idea was that the Hebrews, when they were, the Israelites, when they were gathering together in Jerusalem, they would make their way up the Temple Mount. The temple in Jerusalem was set on a a hilltop there. And and around Jerusalem was a valley all the way around. And they would gather in that valley. And as they were marking and marching their way up the hill, they would sing these songs. And Passover and Pentecost you would hear the valley echo with this tune. Literally, their bodies were were gathering in the depths of the valley and ascending up the mountain to worship God. There's a chapel in in the uh, Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem. And in that chapel, they have this beautiful stained glass window that was designed by Chagall. And the windows are, are set in the domed roof of that, and it seems to almost call the worshiper up into the heavenly praise. Directly beneath the window, the floor is, is sunken, kind of pushed down, and right in the middle of that, that depression, there stands the pulpit. A group of tourists were there visiting, and they asked the hospital representative about it, and the hospital representative explained, the floor beneath the windows was, was made low intentionally because we believe that all prayer should be offered out of the depths. We haven't done it in a while, my friends. We've, we've been on a journey and haven't been able really to, to do this in a while, but we have a place now where we can come forward, where we can take a position with our bodies in the very depths themselves in a place of lowliness and humility. This isn't a, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, and God loves me anyway type invitation. This is simply that we, all of us, are a part of the brokenness of the world. We carry in our bodies the wounds of life, the marring of sin, the shame of regret. We are, all of us, whether you are right there today, at times in the depths. And so we're going to end our service by waiting. If you need to leave, that's okay. Take a cookie with you. If you can stay for just a moment, I'm going to invite you to tarry. And if God is leading you to take a posture of kneeling, I'm going to invite you to come. Raymond, if you'll come and lead us as we sing about God making things beautiful. And we're going to take a moment and we're going to wait upon the Lord. More than those who wait for morning. More than the line at the DNV, More than that woman pregnant in her 40th week. More than those who are in their stage four at the hospital. We wait knowing that we are loved and forgiven and hoping in that coming power of redemption and that blessed holy tension connecting the now and the not yet. We wait. Let us pray.